Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to the elders, past, present, and emerging. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Doing Well, the Wellbeing Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Blue Ngo, coming to your ears from NARM, Melbourne, Australia. Let's learn together. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Doing Well. We're going to be here to talk about well-being every week, and thank you for tuning in. So today, we're going to talk to Dr. Tina Shermer-Sellers about sexual self, making meaning of our sexual experiences. I don't know about you, but this is a topic that we don't talk about enough, and I feel like today we're going to learn a lot about this topic. We're going to get really just honest in this conversation. I hope that's where we're going to go, and maybe we'll you know, uncover something that's uncomfortable, maybe a bit sensitive, um, but in the spirit of learning, I think this is very important. And Dr. Tina is the perfect guest to talk to us about this. Um, as I said, her bio is super impressive. I would like to share with you that she is a licensed sex and gender feminist psychotherapist, best-selling author, researcher, emeriti professor, that was a new word that I learned today, and media personality whose expertise spans sex therapy, spiritual intimacy, parenting, medicine, and social justice. Her revolutionary perspectives have been expressed on platforms such as Spirituality and Health, Refinery29, Vocal, Medium, and Bus magazines, along with many podcasts, radio, news, and TV outlets. Known for exposing the impact of patriarchy and sexual shame on our ability to securely attach to our partners and instruct our children to attach to theirs, Dr. Seller's book, Sex, God, and the Conservative Church, Erasing Shame from Sexual Intimacy, has had a global impact. Her latest book, Shameless Parenting, Everything You Need to Raise Shame-Free, Confident Kids, and Heal Your Shame Too, was a new release bestseller in eight categories. She speaks throughout the world on how to heal and how to raise shame-free, relationally confident children. That is a very impressive bio. And you can see me kind of like finding my words there because I really wanted to cover everything. I was talking to Dr. Tina and I was like, it's such a great bio. I don't want to leave anything out. Uh, but I always tell my guests that, you know what? A bio is a bio. And no one can introduce you better than yourselves because you have a story. And today I'm hoping we'll hear your story. Um, so welcome to the show, Dr. Tina. Thank you again for your patience throughout our very hectic morning in the studio. And um, please share a bit more about yourself, you know, why you did the work that you have been, you know, you chose the path that you are on right now. Um, and also some fun facts uh, in between, because I feel like we'll hear about quite a few of them, especially considering the kind of work that you're doing. So yeah, please introduce yourself to our audience. Thank you, Lou, so much for having me. It's, I'm just delighted to be here. Uh, yeah, so uh, I don't know. I've been doing this work for a little over 30 years, and I began actually as a junior high and high school teacher. I have a big place in my heart for adolescence, and so I did that work. And while I was doing that work, I taught human sexuality as one of the courses that I taught. But I really noticed during the years that I was teaching 
that it felt like students were bringing so much um, experience, sometimes challenging experience from their life into the classroom that was impacting their ability to learn. And I thought to myself, gosh, you know, I think I really want to go back and study how to work with families so that kids feel the kind of support that they need to feel in order to learn well. So I ended up going back to school to be a marriage and family therapist and did that for a long time and was a professor in a marriage and family therapy program, uh, taught their medical family therapy uh, program, which looked at the impact of illness on people's lives. But also all of the years that I was doing that, which was from like the early 90s until the almost 2020, I was teaching the graduate level human sexuality class as well, which was a required course for licensure in the state of Washington, where I live in the United States. And one of the uh, assignments I would have my students do is when they're learning all kinds of things about how sexuality might walk into your room, into your office as a therapist, I had them write their sexual autobiography. And usually when people hear that, they're like, what, are you kidding? I cannot imagine doing that. But you know, when you're training up therapists, it's really important that they know where their own personal stories begin and end and their clients' stories begin and end. So they don't get those confused. And sometimes when things are in our unconscious versus our conscious, they can get very confused. And so in the United States where we don't have comprehensive sex education, stories, our sexual stories aren't a cohesive narrative. They are these one-off experiences like, oh, I remember getting in trouble for playing doctor when I was five, or I remember my first kiss, or they're kind of these one-off experiences. And having it not be a cohesive narrative meant that we were sending therapists out into the world highly likely to get their own sexual biases confused with what was going on in other people's lives. And so I had them, I gave them like 60, 70 questions. And I said, I'm not looking for you to answer every one of these questions. What I'm looking for you to do is to, to look at an arc of what your sexual legacy is. So how did you learn about sexuality and your body and gender, et cetera, from your family of origin as you were little, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. What happened in your adolescence? What messages did you get from culture, from the media, et cetera? What's been happening now that you're an adult, right? So I just asked a lot of different questions. The students would write these papers that were anywhere from 15 to 30 pages long. And they would tell me that it was one of the hardest things they wrote in all of grad school, but that it was so important to them because they became clear about what in their legacy they wanted to pass forward and what they did not. So around the year, so I started doing this in the early 90s and around the year 2000, one of the things I noticed was this dramatic increase in what I came to call sexual shame in my students' lives. The way it came across in their papers was that they would describe themselves as perverted. They would feel disgusted about themselves. They would feel humiliated about what they had thought or felt or done or not done sexually as they had been growing up. And I couldn't figure out at first why I was hearing so much from them about this just feeling awful about themselves, feeling so badly. 
and why there was an increase in ignorance about what was developmentally common, typical, normal. So I ended up spending time just asking more questions of them, trying to understand. And what I realized, it took about three years, but what I realized is I was hitting the first wave of students who had come through the beginning of the abstinence education program that started around 1980 in the United States, peaked in the early 90s. And these students were in their adolescence during that time. We also had what we, what we came to call purity culture, which was the drive of the evangelical right in the United States, which was this huge population. So students were feeling really badly because what we had done to them was we had removed all common sexual health education from their lives and told them just don't, it's dangerous, don't do anything, it'll kill you, right? And um, and and really told them that if they did do any of these things that it might cost them their life and it definitely could cost them their future and future relationships. And so we just, I just had all these kids that were just really had been impacted by this. That took me on a completely new journey in my career where I went back, I got my PhD in clinical sexology. I wanted to understand the breadth of human sexual experience and I wanted to study the impact of sexual shame on people's ability to, to give and receive love well. In other words, to be happy, to experience joy. And that's really what I started to do. And in 2006, I was asked to write an article by an online journal called The Intersection of Theology and Culture. And it was called Christians Caught Between the Sheets, How an Abstinence-Only Ideology Hurts Us. At that time, I really thought that what we had experienced had a lot to do with what was happening in conservative Western religion in the United States. But it actually was a socio-political movement that went far into our public schools as well. And so it was bigger than that. But that particular article, I got, it kind of went viral. And I heard from people around the globe and they said, you are, you are speaking things I've never heard before. And all I was doing was saying, here's what I'm noticing. Here's what I'm hearing. We are hurting people, whether we mean to or not, we are clearly hurting people and people are showing up with signs and symptoms of, of childhood sexual abuse, even though they haven't specifically been sexually assaulted. But this type of learning that they got around what was wrong with their bodies, their desires, their hopes, their dreams, their actions was actually causing symptoms of sexual assault, especially in people who were really earnest or kind of anxious, you know? And, um, and then that response from that article took me to doing more deep research and writing that first book that took me 11 years to write. And so in many ways, my, my career took a hard turn in the uh, early 2000s. And I really began to focus on how do we help people heal from sexual shame? How do we help them live into the fullness of what is beautiful and lovely about them and their lives. So that's a, a little arc of how I got from there to there to where I am now. Yeah. Well, what a story. You know, when you were talking about that, I was kind of like, well, that makes sense. 
it makes a lot of sense why you're doing the work that you're doing because it's so important, right? You saw the importance while you were just initially curious to when you actually chose to do it professionally, now writing books about it. I think it's it's just a really beautiful way of saying, you know what, this is the day for it. Let's talk about it today. And we're definitely going to do um, talk about this topic in a little bit. But before we go into the topic, I would love to get to know you a bit better. And mm -hmm. I'm sure our audience would as well. This is a section we called, Have You Met Dr. Tina? And we would love to get some recommendations from you or um, if not recommendation, then just something you would like to talk about because it's really close to your heart or it's the first thing that comes up into your mind whenever you hear these words. Okay. Yeah. So first thing first, what is a book you would recommend? In the last couple of years, I, I'm a avid book reader. Um, so a couple of books that have really kind of, I don't know, changed things for me or or stuck in my mind is one of them is called Women After All by Dr. Melvin Connor. He's a medical anthropologist and it's a brilliant book. It reads like a novel, but it's filled with research. And so it's just my kind of book. It was really and he talks about what's happening with patriarchy globally now. And it's, it's brilliant. Um, and then I read another book this last year called um, uh, Recapture the Rapture by Jamie Wheel. And it's looking at human transformation. And he's saying, basically, we need human transformation if we're going to save our globe. Uh, here are what here's what we know about how humans have transformed their lives across time. So it's 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 just remarkable and, and brilliant. So, yeah, there's two books that come to mind first to me. Yeah. Well, thank you. We asked for one. You gave us two. That's really good. <laughs> it's hard for me to choose. Yeah, I know. I could imagine. So that's the first one. Second one is a movie you would recommend. Yeah. A couple of years ago, a delightful movie came out uh, called Goodbye, Leo Grand with Emma Thompson and Daryl McCormick. And it's a brilliant story of sexual health and vitality. And it, but it's kind of wrapped in a mysterious, uh, unsuspecting kind of way. So we often don't see sexual health. I think uh, depicted in the movies very often. And this was one. And I just, I was so pleased somebody did it. And Emma does a, so Emma and Daryl both do br a brilliant job acting in this movie. Oh, wow. I've never heard about this movie before. So now I have. I'm going to put that on my yeah. list. It sounds interesting. Yeah. And you're on the podcast now as a guest, but what is yeah. your favorite podcast to listen to? Oh, there are so many that are so good. So I, like many people, hop around to lots of them. But I have probably a just an all-time favorite that I've listened to for so many years has been Krista Tippett's On Being. So her podcast introduces has introduced me to so many people that I've gone on to learn more about. Uh, so that's just one I love. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, next one is your famous role model, or if not famous, then your personal role model. Yeah. Uh, a, a role model for me for years has been Maya Angelou. I love her writing. I love how brave she was in her life um, to speak truth to power. And um, so she's somebody that I hold dear in my heart. Yeah. 
Beautiful. And finally, what is a what is a course you've completed? It doesn't have to be recent because I know you probably teach. You've taught a lot of courses, uh, but yeah, what's what's one that you've completed that you are just so impressed by that you would like to talk about? Yeah. Well, surprisingly, right now I'm actually in a certificate program for psychedelic assisted therapy. So I can talk about that a lot, but that's something that I'm doing a great amount of learning about right now. And I am really appreciating all that I'm learning and excited for the future of what that this these medicines can bring to the healing capacities that so many of us globally need. Yeah, I've heard so much about them recently, and that certainly sounds interesting. I also love you're still learning, you know, because a lot of people are like, I haven't taken a course in years. (laughs) This is great. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So those are the five things that we wanted to ask you. I think by this point, our audience have got to know you a bit better. And we're ready for the topic of the day. This, again, I think I mentioned this to you at the very beginning. It's going to be a new topic for me. It's going to be an interesting topic to talk about. It will be a bit uncomfortable, uh, but I think it's a very important one that we don't talk about enough, which is why it's a little uncomfortable because we don't talk about it enough. It's a vicious cycle. So let's Uh talk about sexual self, making meaning of our sexual experiences. And this is a show about well-being. So first of all, let's start broad. Let's talk about well-being. What does well-being mean to you, Dr. Tina? I really appreciate this question. And as I thought about it, I was thinking, you know, when I think about well-being, it's predicated first on a couple of basic kinds of things that need to be in place first. And one of them is adequate housing, adequate food, adequate access to care, that it's pre- well-being to me is predicated on that. It's also predicated on an adequate, safe, and loving community that we have some people around us that we trust. When we have those two things, then I think we can begin to talk about well-being. And for me, well-being is the ability to live and to love authentically and to see oneself as deeply valuable. If I am able to do that, if I can be authentic in the world as who I see myself as authentically and feel good about that, then I think we become free to give and receive love. And I think our happiness and our well-being so much and our even our experience of joy comes from from that. Yeah, that's an interesting one, because um, besides this show, I also host um, a show about happiness and when you mentioned your definition, it's kind of like you're touching on happiness a little bit, but the ground for that is actually well-being. And mm-hmm. I, I talk about this um, every now and again on the show, but it's kind of like I'm learning so much about this and it gets confusing the more I learn about it, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know which one is the, is the foundation of, of which. So we have happiness, we have well-being, but it, it seems like everything's interconnected. So that's the, right. that's the interesting part. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So well-being to you um, is all of that with a foundation. And uh, I think being being true to who you are, that's very important. I think a a couple of guests actually mentioned that on the show about happiness. Um, But in the context of well-being, we have so many things to cover, right? Because we talk about physical well-being, mental well-being, emotional well-being, all the different aspects. And oftentimes people get 
things incorrectly when they look at their well-being awesome. and this is personal so it doesn't right. it doesn't mean that everyone gets uh, the same thing wrong and your personal definition would allow you to look at things differently so right. my question would be what are some of the misconceptions about well-being that you've noticed especially given your own definition yeah i I know, my, as you could tell, my definition is very much centered on being sort of at peace with oneself. Um, I think so often in Western culture, the focus is on external things as if well-being can be attained if I have enough external things. I have the right house. I have enough stuff. I have the right job. I have the right education. I am admired. I look a particular way. It's very externally focused. And what I see when I look around is that there are many people that have lots of external things and they might be very comfortable, but they might not be at peace with themselves. Their own inner well-being isn't settled. And we still see high suicide rates, right? And people that we're surprised by because we think, oh, I thought they had everything. So that's not where I think our well-being comes from. So I think the misconception that often happens in the West and in a in a consumer-based product-driven type of culture is that it's all out there. And, and I would argue that it's actually in here. It's in here. It's inside of ourselves and, and the peace we make with, like you're talking about, our, our, our spiritual well-being, our physical well-being, the peace we make with where we are. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think a couple of other experts on the show have talked about this. You know, it's not that uncommon because it's very materialistic um, where we are right now, especially with the rise of social media. Everyone starts to compare, you know, what they have instead of what's actually in here. We don't talk about this very much, um, which is what we're trying to change, I think, um, on this show because we talk about it quite a bit. Um, and well-being is such a broad concept, which is why we are talking about the topic of the day, because maybe, you know, a lot of the times people don't really think about our sexual self as part of, you know, our well-being in general. They don't think that, hey, we got to take care of our sexual self, or our well-being. I bet you there might be at least um, a, a major, you know, population that actually don't think about it at all. And today let's talk about it so we can draw some attention there. And hopefully I learned something new and our audience learned something new alongside. So first of all, how would you define the concept of sexual self? Well, this, I'm going to say something that's really obvious, but I am concurring with so much with what you say. We don't talk about it very often. We are bodied humans. Like we walk around in the world with a body and we love with our bodies. And people love in all kinds of ways, but they use their body to love, right? Whether it's to hug somebody or just to look at them and be very present with them, just in many, many ways. So I think of our sexual self is, how is it that we honor who we are with our bodies when we go to both love our own body, as well as love and connect, share connection and pleasure with someone else? How do we do that? And we do we do that, do we feel free to do that in a way that honors us, feels safe to us, feels good to us, helps us thrive? So that's that's how I think about our sexual self. Yeah. See, this is new because I don't think anyone's defined it that way, especially if you're not an expert talking to your friends, you'd be like, 
ew, sexual stuff, why are you talking about that? You know, sometimes it comes up in conversations, especially in cultures that consider this to be a taboo topic. Um, I know that firsthand because that's where I'm from. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it's a it's a very important thing to address. Um, and yeah, it's a beautiful definition because we all need to know about our sexual self to start embracing uh, parts of it that we need to know more about and improve our well-being in general. So sure. the next question is related to this relationship, because first we have defined, uh-huh. you have defined well-being from your perspective. Then you've uh-huh. opened our eyes to what sexual self means. What? So how do our sexual experiences affect our well-being? Yeah. Well, I think this is where things can get complicated. If we live in a world that's very externally focused and we're looking for affirmation based on what someone else tells us about our own value, so I call that a reflective sense of self, like I look to you to tell me that I'm valuable, then we'll often find ourselves having experiences of connection and pleasure that are for someone else, but don't consider us necessarily because we're looking for a reflected sense of you're valuable. Then we often can find ourselves having a whole host of experiences of sexual experiences, intimate experiences where we look back on them and we think, I didn't really want to be there. or I don't really like what happened there. Or, I didn't really think about it before it happened, or I don't really know what my motivation was for it. Right. And And that's, of course, very common because we started out with an external sense of looking for value as opposed to knowing ourselves that we are, in fact, and I'm a firm believer that every human is radically valuable and radically imperfect. It's part of being human, right? But they aren't juxtaposed to each other. They just sit side by side. We are always radically valuable. Nothing we do changes that. And we're going to always be learning, right? So we're radically imperfect. If we move to a place where we start to accept ourselves more, be curious about ourselves more, curious about pleasure, believe that we deserve pleasure, learn about our own bodies and how and where our bodies give us pleasure, and begin to think about if I want to share that with somebody else, what do I want that to look like, right? Then I began being much more the conductor of my own sexual experiences. And I start having experiences that are much more in line with what I actually want to experience. They're truthful, they're honest, they're authentic, they're consensual. Um, And as I start to have more of those kinds of experiences, then I think we start to feel like, oh, this is this is a good part of me. Um, I, I, it's an integrated part of me and I can um, be in relationship to my own sexuality, my own con- desire for connection and pleasure with myself and with others in a way that feels really good to me. And, and if we're involved with somebody else, obviously thinking about what honors them too, but it's not what honors them as if we don't matter. We always matter. So we're always a part of that equation, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like there's going to be so much more to talk about because, you know, you just started page one, I feel, <laughs> uh, you know, because like you said it gets really complicated, right? So 
Yeah, it's um, it's a, a good thing that you mentioned that because I think a lot of the times, uh, I don't know about the the research and what you encounter a lot in your work, but what I have noticed with, uh, let's say, conversation with friends is they would talk about um, experiences with others rather than with themselves. <laughs> which is also important, right? Because we also need to take care of ourselves. And this is part of it because like you said, if we know ourselves and we can then know what, and start to think about what it's like, you know, when we want to have these experiences with another person or other people. Right. And I noticed that we just don't talk about this because maybe there's that component of shame. And I think right. this is what you mentioned um, when, when I saw your bio, this is what, part of what your work is about, right? Let's talk a lot about right. shame. And yeah. it's kind of like this taboo thing that you never talk about. And if you are engaged in it in any shape or form, you're a bad person. Right. Um, it's really interesting because yesterday um, I, I got uh, to stand in for one of the hosts for one of the other shows at LMSL. And we were also talking about, you know, something that's similar and related to this topic. We were actually talking uh -huh. about contraception, not um, sexual experiences. But, you know, a lot of the times it's, it's the same thing. It's so much shame yeah. associated with it. And it's kind of like, well, this topic is coming up a lot for me now uh, this week. And I just started to think about it. I'm like... Yeah, I, I noticed that we don't talk about this with friends at all because it gets awkward and it feels like there's so much shame there. And maybe because of that, of our social conditioning, of our upbringing, a lot of other factors. But yeah, I wonder how we can normalize this. And it's just a question that's kind of lingering in the back of my mind. Not a question uh -huh. for us to address because I think it's very systemic and it's much bigger than this conversation. Uh, but I, I would like to throw in that because I find that to be mm -hmm. interesting. Uh -huh. Yeah, there's there's a lot we don't do in the United States, and this might be true in Australia as well, but when you live in a country that does not do comprehensive sex education, so that means giving appropriate relational life um, and, and body and sexuality information at an age-appropriate way in every single year from four years old through 18, if you live in a country that does not do that, does not yeah. normalize the conversation and the education around it, then what you have is people living in silence or silence and shame. And so they are going to get from their parents what their parents got from their parents, their parents got from them parents. And it's epigenetic, right? It's it's intergener intergenerational. So we have in the United States, I'd say we have anywhere from 90 to 95% of people that have grown up in homes that are silent or silent and shaming around sexuality. So the primary place they got, people have gotten their information has been from the media and from their friends. Well, and, and from pornography is another primary educator, if you will. And these are not accurate realistic places to get information about bodies, sexuality, relationships, consent, body autonomy, any of those things, you're going to get something, you're going to get an idea that's fantasy and that will sell, right? It's a commodity, people and bodies. So when we don't have actual information and knowledge that is put out in front of that or alongside that, then people don't even know what to question and what not to question. So they go in and they start having their own experiences. And maybe they have learned that um, 
men are dangerous and they can't control themselves. And if they do something that, and you're, you're female, that you're responsible somehow. Right. Or, um, uh, they learn that, um, I should know everything. Therefore I don't have to ask. Right. They learn messages that actually don't help them when they get out into the world and start having their own experiences and they don't know what they don't know, you know? And so they've just put on what culture has handed them, which in many cases doesn't help them be the person they want to be or the lover they want to be. Um, they're just kind of swimming in a whole pile of ignorance and hoping for the best. And then actually really confused when things go south, you know, and then heap upon that, that we, you know, live in the United States is very heteronormative. So if you're anything that's different than that, which there's a lot to be, you know, you're already given other kinds of messages of how you're not good enough and something is wrong with you and yada, yada, yada. That's all heaped on top of people too. So, um, it's, it's like in this one area, it's like, I don't know, like, I know, you know, parent, I know you're going to drive someday and, and, uh, but I'm not about to tell you anything about cars because cars are way too dangerous. They are way, way, way too dangerous. Yeah. And in fact, I don't really want you anywhere near them at all. And then that's all that's said. And then at age 16, 17, 18, whatever, they're handed keys to a Lamborghini and they're expected to go drive it without hurting themselves. It's just not going to happen. Right. So, um, but this is what we do with sexuality and sexual health, which again is primary to how we do our own loving in our lifetimes, how we do loving of ourselves and with others. And yet we give people little to nothing that's accurate and helpful and a whole lot that's not so helpful. Yeah. I mean, that, that is so true. And I, I was like nodding throughout the whole part where you talked about it because I, I think I talked about the, the other, about this on the other show yesterday, but I'm fr originally from Vietnam, a country where we don't talk about sex education nearly <laughs> enough. And I can confer with you that in, in my family and my extended family, no one talks about it. Okay. ever okay. there's no mention whatsoever even the cousins generation you know our generation we don't talk about it yeah I, I would talk about that this topic with my friends here but not at home because there's mm -hmm. still this like this atmosphere of like oh it's really taboo don't talk about it don't talk about it don't go there and it's hard to change you know I'm I'm not saying that yeah like I talk about it all the time I'm actually saying it's really hard to talk about it in the first place but it's so important and no one talks about it. And, and it's just got me to think why, why don't mm -hmm. we change it? You know, because it's, it's weird not talking about it because it's kind of like, well, okay, <laughs> parents make babies. That's why we're here at least, right? At the very least, but at the very least, yeah. Our parents avoid talking about that altogether. Right, right, yeah. right. I, um, I grew up in a Swedish immigrant home and they're in about the early 40s or so, Sweden and many of the other Northern European countries started doing comprehensive sex education. And it was in Sweden, it was led by a family doctor, a female. And she kind of came up against the church and she said, people need to learn this. 
and we are going to put together a comprehensive program. And she just pushed against because the church in Sweden, which was Lutheran primarily, did not want it to happen. Right. This has been true. And often we find these deep roots in the silence and shame. We find deep roots in Catholicism and other forms of religion. Um, and it really has much more to do with patriarchy than it has to do with health and wellness, you know, and, um, but in countries like Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Finland, Holland, Iceland, they have had comprehensive sex education for a long time. They have the lowest STI rates, lowest teen pregnancy rates, highest number of people involved in sexual relationships where they believe love is involved. Um, where they feel secure and safe and people get involved with sexuality a little bit later than they do in the U.S. Um, so it's actually protective of children to get this information because then they can tell what exploitation is. They Absolutely. have the skills to know what consent is. Yeah. They know that, that that's part of their body is normal and wonderful and is part of how they learn to love and be in relationship in the world. And that's been normalized since their earliest memories and not with a talk, but with a hundred one minute conversations that went all the way across their development. And people feel entirely different. If you, if you ever have a chance to chat with somebody from one of those countries, it's, it's really compelling to listen to how they feel and sit with what sexuality is for them. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's so much to be done about this because, you know, I have my own experiences and I wonder what others would have in terms of their experiences, right? We never had sexual education, um, at least for me, until I was in high school and it was Mm -hmm. a really strange class, might I tell you. It was like this massive hole. Everyone was herded into that hole and just got taught it and, you know, they just passed condoms around. That's, That's basically the class. And um, yeah, by the end of it, I don't think we remembered anything. <laughs> so that was not done right. Um, but yeah, I think it's just so important to emphasize the fact that it's so important, especially where it's not a, let's say, quote unquote, normal topic to talk about. Right. So common. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That was part of what prompted me to write the last book I wrote, um, Shameless Parenting, because I had so many parents that were, you know, in their 30s, 40s, and were raising, many of them raising children. And they were saying, I don't want to do to my kids what was done to me. Can you help me? And I said, I, I absolutely can. I can put together something that's like, your kids are birth to two. Here's what you need to know. Here's what might come up for you. Here's the top resources. Yeah. Two to four here's what kids might do. Here's how you might feel about it. Here's what they need from you. Here are the top resources. And so literally the parents can turn right to where their kids are and learn what's typical, what's common, how you talk to them. Also to notice what comes up for them when they imagine their child, you know, finding their clitoris, finding their penis or something and be like, oh, I don't know. They can kind of learn to calm themselves down. Yeah. And they, because I'm always saying, you know, if you feel uptight when you imagine it, that's just simply your body telling you that you were shamed when you were that age. Yeah. And so you can just breathe yourself right through it and know that you've got a precious little human in front of you 
that just wants you to explain their body. If you're telling them about their eyes and their nose and their ears, you can tell them about their genitals too. It's just another wonderful part of their body. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think these are rooted in misconceptions as well, you know, because I think you you mentioned quite a few of them already, but what would be some of the other misconceptions that people get when it comes to sexuality? Yeah, you know, one of them that I hear from very conservative people, which is an idea that's been around for years and years is if I teach this, then they'll do it, right? That is a huge misconception. It's actually the opposite. When we give kids information, they make much smarter choices because they understand the complexity of something. You know, if you're teaching them all about cars and how fast they go and what makes them go and, you know, um, all the different parts and whatever, and what makes things dangerous, whatever, they're much more apt to then go into that situation being knowledgeable, being like, this is why I'm not speeding because it's a neighborhood and there are kids around, you know, because they have knowledge, right? It's not, they're not just being led by, I don't know, their testosterone or their hormones or they are trying to be cool or whatever, you know? So it's, that's a misconception that's very common that I hear often and, and is, is, 100% wrong. In fact, it's completely the opposite of that. Um, let's see. You know, there's a long-standing idea that somehow people and especially women become less valuable once they've had penetrative intercourse. So once they've quote unquote lost their virginity, that's ridiculous. Um, we're not, our value is not defined by our behaviors. If we were not meant to learn through experience, then our prefrontal lobe would be done cooking before the age of 25 or 28, but it's not. So experience is a teacher for us. So while we want to help children have what they need to be equipped to make good decisions, if they make decisions that are like, they come back and say, I think that was a mistake. We can say, all right, sweet pea. Well, mistakes can be turned into lessons if we ask ourselves what we want to do differently next time. So let's talk about that, right? There's nothing wrong about learning from mistakes or learning from things that we wish we'd done different. That's human. That's part of growth and development, right? But we have had for thousands of years, this idea that if you have intercourse or you do whatever that you're somehow less valuable, less wanted, your damaged goods, your whatever. And, um, and that simply obviously is not true. Right. In fact, we know mm. that people that have, um, more non-traumatic sexual experiences that allow them to learn about what they like, what they don't like, what kinds of people they like to be with, etc. They learn about their own body that they are much more apt to, if they want a partner, to choose partners that fit them better because they've had experiences. You know, I always like dating is a teacher for you to learn about who you like and who you don't like and what you like and what you don't like and how you like to be treated and how you don't and what partnership means and what it doesn't. You know, it's, it's a teacher and let it be a teacher. It's a good teacher. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. 
I mean, these are the two big ones. Um, and I really like the car analogy that you've been using. I mean, especially for car lovers, like this is <laughs> perfect. Um, but yeah, I think it's um, it's so important to start with education, first of all. And I think that's where things really change because I think even teachers, um, especially in you know the foundational years, like primary, secondary, sometimes the perspectives of the teachers really shape up how um, you know, these students, these kids are going to grow up to believe, um, you know, in sexuality, you know, maybe even have shame because they were shamed, um, right. even just verbally, um, yeah. it, you know, like it's so massive when you think about it, because one small experience right. when you were younger can change everything. Right. Well, and I think often we're not thinking about it because we're not, like you say, talking about it, but if we know anything about child development, right around the age of 10 months old, an infant begins to learn that they can control their hands. They can reach out towards something and grab it purposefully. And so right around a year old, when they're, so this is pre-verbal, when they're getting their diapers changed or they're in the bathtub, their hand will land on their genitals and that will be a glorious day for them because that part of your body has an incredible amount of nerve endings, right? It feels yeah, really good absolutely. to touch it. And so that is exciting for them. Now, from one years old to five years old is the span of time when children will keep doing what's pleasurable and comforting to them. And if they live in a home where someone or, or the adults are uncomfortable with that, they will keep getting in trouble for doing this very, very normal thing. And it won't be until they're about five cognitively when they get in trouble for playing doctor that they will remember that one and then start purposefully hiding their desire for pleasuring themselves or being curious about others. They're gonna go underground with it because now they've figured out, I don't know why, but you get mad at me like something must be fundamentally wrong with me because I'm just being me and you unload on me, right? And so they've been getting shamed since they were a year old. They have hundreds and hundreds of experiences that are pre-verbal, but by five, they'll start remembering getting in trouble. But that shame by that point is deep already. So I'm I'm one of the few people that I mean, I love Brene Brown's work on shame, Too. but in my work around sexuality, I said, you know, I believe sexual shame in the United, in countries like ours in the United States, where we don't provide, we don't believe sexuality is important to learn about and we shame it, whatever, that it's your very first shame and that you can, you can suffer a lot of shame experiences before you start hiding because you're bad, Right. Um, we're not doing anybody any favors because these kids, kids are just being themselves. Of course, they're curious. Of course, they're going to be drawn to something that's pleasurable. That's human. That's healthy. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So, but we're kind of doing it backwards. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking about different countries because, you know, it, it's interesting to hear that this is the situation in the United States. Imagine what's going on in other countries like mine yeah. in, you know, especially in the Southeast Asia region. It's, it's 
definitely hard to imagine what kids are going through nowadays because uh-huh. I, you know i hear that they they get taught different things especially different schooling system you have the public ones you have the private ones and they teach different things yes 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 yeah it's a very massive yeah. problem uh, but mm-hmm. on the topic of shame uh, how can we overcome this shame and guilt this is a very big question and yeah. i feel like i feel like this will require hours of therapy for each person <laughs> um but I think in the context of this conversation, we can start small, yeah. you know, like from yeah. your line of work, you've written books about this. You've, you've done so much yeah. research into this. What would be some of the baby steps that can help yeah, I don't know. us to so overcome I wonder shame and guilt? If it would, yeah. I wonder if it would be helpful if I give the research definition of sexual shame so that people kind of have a sense of what it is, Definitely. how it manifests in your life. Yeah. And then we can talk about what are steps you can take to heal if this is something you identify with? So I'm going to read the operational definition. We actually didn't have good solid research on sexual shame until 2017. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. So not that long ago. So the, the definition says sexual shame is a visceral feeling of humiliation and disgust toward one's own body and identity as a sexual being and a belief of being abnormal, inferior, and unworthy. This feeling can be internalized, but it also manifests in interpersonal relationships, having a negative impact on trust, communication, and physical and emotional intimacy. Sexual shame develops across the lifespan, like I was just talking about, in interactions with interpersonal relationships, one's culture and society, so from everything else you're getting out there, and it creates a subsequent critical self-appraisal. So in other words, an inner critic gets going that then starts berating you for all the things that are bad and wrong about you, right? So it's a feedback loop. There is also a fear and uncertainty related to one's power or right to make decisions, including safety decisions related to sexual encounters, along with an internalized judgment toward one's own sexual desire. So in other words, I don't know if you're aware of the work by Peggy Ornstein. She wrote a book called Girls and Sex and then another one called Boys and Sex, where she just interviewed Girls and the girls in sex, it was girls 15 to 22 and the boys in sex, same thing, 15 to 22, about 80 to 100 of each. In the girls research, what she found was she'd find these girls felt competent in every area of their life, like what they wanted to study, who they wanted to be, like they had all this confidence until they got ready to go out. And then they were putting down three, four and five shots of hard liquor because they didn't know if they could keep themselves safe or if they had the right to. So what we see in this definition is the embedding of rape culture that we here have here in the United States. Kids don't, they don't even have to have grown up in a, with a home with a religious background at all. And they are filled with shame and they don't even know if they can keep themselves safe out there or if they have the right to protect themselves or to put up protective boundaries or barriers for themselves. So sexual shame is rampant in the United States, I would say, and 
I think we're upwards of around 80% of women under the age of 40 have experienced at least one unwanted sexual encounter in their life. So trauma is, is also rampant in the United States. So when people come to me and they're like, Tina, I don't, I feel like I have tar all over me. Like I just like this shame is weighing me down so much. How do I heal? I talk about something that I wrote in the Sex, God, and Conservative Church book. I call it healing the mess, the model for erasing sexual shame, the mess. And there are four different things that we can do, and we kind of do them over and over again, like unwinding a ball of yarn. And they are frame, name, shame, and frame, claim, name, and shame. So frame is get yourself a frame or a scaffolding of solid sex education. And there's all kinds of places that you can go, books, podcasts, you know, all kinds of places to get solid information. So now you can begin to differentiate between what was fantasy, what was mythology, what was misinformation, and what is accurate about the wonder of you and your body and all that it can do. Um, So that's frame. Name is share your story with someone that you can trust, someone who will listen with empathy, someone who is kind or a therapist for that matter. Because what you're going to find when you begin to share your own story of what it was like to grow up in your particular family, in your particular community, you're going to find you weren't alone, that you're not alone. So many people share much of your experience and also have felt very isolated in the misinformation that they gathered and this the silence and shame that they acquired so that's that's name so frame name claim is learn to claim your body as good no matter how it is how we look is 90 percent determined by our heredity What's our ancestry, right? That determines so much how our body puts itself together, so much more than almost anything else. You know, if we have adequate food, our body is going to decide how it wants to be based on what our DNA says, you know, because of our ancestry and our heredity. We are meant to be a diverse people. We are meant to look different from each other, similar and different in all kinds of beautiful, magnificent ways. We are not meant to be six foot three, 120 pounds, stark white and blonde. We aren't. We're just not. And and when we put that out there for people, all, all it does is invite them to discount themselves, not see themselves as valuable and spend more money running your economy right? It's just not helpful. So we all have to work hard to begin to claim our bodies as good. And this is a lot of work. It doesn't happen overnight. We've been getting thousands of messages a week on how we're not good enough. In the United States, we have 50% of six-year-old girls already modifying their diets, 90% or two-thirds of nine-year-olds and 90% of 15-year-olds. So they have gotten the message loud and clear. You are not okay as you are, right? So frame, name, and claim. As we do these things over and over and over again, what we begin to do is aim for a whole new legacy 
for ourselves and for those that we love. A new relationship with ourselves and our bodies, a new relationship with other others, we start to have voice about why this is important and why we need to talk about it and why it's not dirty or nasty, but it's actually glorious and wonderful. And aren't we fortunate, yeah. right? We start talking about it different and we start as we start reading about things and speaking out loud and saying the words, we're like, oh, that's not so hard. I can do that. And we just get better and better and it gets easier and easier over time. So a whole new legacy can emerge and we can change things that have been one way for hundreds or thousands of years. We can change it in one generation and and not go ever back again. So yeah. that's that's the beginning of what to do. I mean, there's other ways to heal, but but that's just a good start, good place to start. Yeah, there's so much to do, you know, like, and there's so much we can do, right? It's not like we don't have the power. The power is in our hands. So I think it's yeah. just a matter of choice. And mm -hmm. like you said earlier, education is so foundational. So I think yes. we should all start there. You know, if uh, if it's hard to talk to other people, then first we can educate ourselves. Um, the good thing is there are so many resources out there nowadays, yes. like your yeah. work, for example. So we can right. start there. Yes, absolutely. That's part of why I did the second book was, was like, here, just these, I'd even, I'd said to some people, even if you're not going to have kids, that's not really the issue. Get yourself all these kids books and just read them so that you can get an idea of how would you talk to a five-year-old? How would you talk to an eight-year-old? Because this is what you should have gotten, but you didn't get it. Yeah. And so now you can kind of like deposit it in yourself, you yeah. know, so it's there. It's there for you now. Yeah, yeah totally. Well, that's a really good foundation because this topic that we're talking about today is to make meanings of our sexual experiences. And we are going to have to look at that from you know, the perspective of our own selves and our partners. And you mentioned this briefly earlier, uh, but to close out this section, I would love to hear from you in terms of, okay, now we have uh, known how to overcome shame and guilt, if that is a thing. If, if someone is not going through that at all, great. Uh, but I feel like most of us are kind of going uh -huh. through that healing process. So yeah. once we've done that healing, how do we embrace our sexuality and how do we communicate our sexual needs with our partners? Yeah. So as you're doing the work, it's things are going to get easier and easier because your knowledge is going to grow. Your comfort with the language is going to grow. Um, and just like learning a new language, at first, you're going to just start understanding the words and then understanding the concepts, but you're not going to feel comfortable speaking it yet. But then you get some fr safe friends and you start kind of talking together, maybe reading a couple of books together and then talking out loud. As you start sort of stumbling into the talking about it, your comfort is going to increase there too. And, and then in that process, I think really looking at what's your own relationship to connection and pleasure, sharing connection and pleasure with yourself, seeing your body as good, seeing every inch of your body as good. Um, what parts of your body like, what kinds of touch, you know, and just learning about yourself. You need to know something about you first before you're going to be able to be a good communicator with a partner if you want to share it with a partner. So that's always where you want to start is start with you and keep reminding yourself how much you deserve connection and pleasure, how much you deserve to feel this part of the joy that is available in life. Pleasure. Pleasure is very healing. 
right? It comes from the play part of our right brain, a play part of our brain. It releases all kinds of really yummy endorphins and hormones into our bodies. It's just a really beautiful thing about being human, right? As you start getting comfortable there, then you can, you want to be with partners who you know care about you and care about your pleasure, right? That's sort of first and foremost. If you're with somebody who doesn't give a flying whatever about you, then they're not going to be a good listener. They're going to discount you. They're going to gaslight you, whatever. It's not worth your time. You're too precious. You're too valuable. So be with people who care about what, who are you? What brings you pleasure? Tell me about you. I want to learn about you. Somebody who you know is safe, has your back, and really does want to care about your pleasure. Then get brave and start sharing. Well, I think I like this. I'd be willing to give this a try. Um, are you going to be okay if I don't like something? Are you going? Are you going to take that personally? Or are you just going to see that more as just learning about me? Because I want to know that so that I feel safe enough to be brave enough to tell you if I don't like something. So you have that conversation, right? And you just kind of then tippy toe into it with a really good, safe co-learner with you, right? Where you can both learn about each other and learn about pleasure and connection together. Mm. Yeah, that's a really beautiful one. I really like how you just led us from the baby steps, you know, all the way to the bigger steps. I think it's very important for us to know that we can all start somewhere. And <laughs> I think if we want to keep talking about this, we can truly go on all day because it's such a big topic. Um, but, you know, the tools that you've given our audience and, and myself, I think these are really valuable. And to start thinking about whether, you know, whether it be you're very single like me, or you're in a relationship and you would like to embrace your sexuality better, or you would like mm -hmm. to get into one and you would like to do that and get prepared. I think it's all great to start learning. You know, it's mm -hmm. never too late, never too early. Um, and that's what this educational podcast is about. So here yeah. we are. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Uh, so those are all of our questions for this part. And now we would like to get a bit more practical with you. We like to ask our experts to share a practice that they do with our audience. Um, and sometimes they would throw in things that they would recommend. But I wonder for yourself, since you're the expert, since you've done so much work into this, what is a practice that you use to make meaning in sexual experiences? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I often am inviting people to uh, bring their presence, their intention, their attention, their eyes, their breath, their bodied self to their experiences. So that has to do with showing up fully. <clears throat> Different than being in a sexual experience, whether it's with yourself or with someone else, and being off somewhere else. You're doing the grocery list, you're thinking about tomorrow, you're whatever, but really inviting people to come back into the present moment come back into the pleasure that's here, come back into the sensations that you're having, come back into the beauty of what's going on, the beauty of you, your partner, if you are partnered, <clears throat> just to come back and to make the most, be in the present moment and make the most of the pleasure that you have there. Um, another thing that people do if it's not 
grocery lists or whatever, thinking of what they need to do, they often go up and do what we call spectatoring, where they're up here and they're going, oh, I don't like my stomach. Oh, gosh, my penis isn't working the way I want it to. Oh, and they're up here in this sort of anxious place, right? It's like, no, babe, come right back down. Nothing has to work. You just deserve to feel whatever is pleasurable right now. Just be in the moment and do whatever is pleasurable and try not to be goal oriented. Try just to be in. Let's share pleasure together. Let's share connection together if you're with somebody else or with yourself. And let's just enjoy this. Tomorrow it could be different. That's great. But let's enjoy whatever we've got today, whatever it is. And so it's just, I like to invite that practice, invite people just to be in the present moment of the beauty of being alive enough to share connection and pleasure either with yourself or somebody. And that this is a gift for you, a human gift to make your life more enjoyable. And life is hard. So why not be fully present to whatever could bring you pleasure? Yeah, absolutely. It's a gift and I'm guessing the gift brings a lot of good things to to us once we start to embrace this practice. So what are the three good things about this practice? Uh, It will help you to uh, enjoy your experiences more uh, because you are more present to them. It will um, help you understand yourself better. And hopefully that's an invitation continuing to accept yourself more. And then I think it helps you just feel more grateful for the life you're getting to live in the body you're getting to live it in. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So true. And I think it's it's really good that you mentioned that because at the beginning when you mentioned, uh, you know, the definition of well-being, you said everything comes from within and it's not really anything external. And I think this is a a whole world within ourselves that we can explore. Right. And we just forget about it a lot of the time. Uh, So I think it's a really good point that you just raised there. However, it's easier said than done always. So what are some of the challenges people might encounter when they start practicing this? I think the biggest challenge really overall is that we have shame that comes up. So we have these voices, these tapes that come up, that inner critic that I talked about will come up and say, you don't deserve it. You're not pretty enough. You're not strong enough. You're not this enough. You know, um, how could you like this? I mean, just berating us. And so I think that, that whenever we hear that inner critic come up, it's just a reminder that we're still on the path to doing our work. And just, you know, look at it and say, I hear you and I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to come back to the present moment and enjoy the beauty that's right here. And we just, it's a practice that we have to do to just not lean into shame, but lean away from shame and say, you're not speaking truth. Truth is I'm radically valuable and I'm radically imperfect and I'm in a body that feels and I'm going to enjoy this and I deserve to enjoy this. So it's just a practice to bring yourself back to the present. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the golden question is how often should we do this? Because I would imagine this doesn't come up every single day or, you know, like it's, I don't think it's sometimes you can, it's not something you just make time for because sometimes it just so happens you're in the moment and you're like, okay, now I need to ground myself to enjoy this experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I think you're right. I think that, um, you know, 
it can be spontaneous. We can be enjoying something or whatever and then go, oh, you know, I can bring myself more here. I can be more present to it. But I also think that if you live in a culture that doesn't value connection and pleasure as core to the human experience, but it instead values the work you do, the place you live, the ex again, external things, then sometimes there is a kind of discipline, what I call priority discipline, because I don't want to go to my deathbed and have not appreciated certain things in my life. Yeah. And if those things are internal, then I am going to need to make time for them. Totally. Because I'm, my world is encouraging me to look out and be out, you know, but I want to have precious relational experiences and precious experiences with myself. And so I need to make the time for that because, you know, the stores no longer close and um, phones aren't on cords and life is on 24 seven. So I have to turn it off if I'm going to make space for connection and pleasure. Yeah. Um, Cause we can't, we, it's very difficult to do connection and pleasure while we're also on our phone or we're also thinking about work or we're also right doing these other things. Yeah, absolutely. I really love that. Um, and I actually remember, I think I saw this video a really long time ago, like probably four or five years ago of this woman, she was sharing her experience uh, about I think having orgasm for the first time. And mm -hmm. she was saying, I didn't know that you could do that by yourself. But once I found out, I started to make time for it weekly in my schedule, like a, you know, like a self date. And I found yeah. that to be so liberating, like so adorable. And it's just really admirable as well, because not yeah. only did she do it, she actually talked about it and encouraged other people to try it too. And I feel like that is something that we can take with your practice because if you're yes. if you're saying yeah we don't have to wait for things to happen we can actually make it happen ourselves that reminded me of the video that i saw i don't remember where it's from anymore i think from yeah. one of the channels that make contents about you know like young adults and like all these different aspects of sexuality that was really interesting uh that's lovely years yeah. ago i had a i had a client who had um, lost her husband and she had a couple of children and she was, you know, a couple years after his death and she was starting to get her feet again and feel like, okay, we're, I think we're going to be okay. But she was not ready to date yet at all. And so she got a hot tub for her backyard and she made a nightly richer ritual after the kids were in bed. She would go out and sit under the stars and think about her day and relax and just let herself feel what she was grateful for. And she would masturbate inside in, in the hot tub. And that was sort of her way of just reminding herself that she was still a sexual being, that she had an amazing body that could do great things. And it connected her and she would, she talked about it with me. She said, you know, Tina, she said, it's, it's a deeply spiritual experience for me to have these times in the evening to just feel whole again. And I just, I'll never forget it thinking, ah, oh, you know, I wish, I wish everyone did that. And it was a way of just saying, I'm good. This body is good and, and we're okay. We're okay. You know, 
and and just kind of to honor herself in that way. So I love I love it. And I love your story, too. Yeah, I love that. That's so beautiful. Well, thank you. Well, that rounds out our practice part in such a beautiful way. As I said, we can continue this conversation all day. I feel like there's so much more to explore and discover. But in the interest of time, let's go into open mic. So this is your forum to talk about anything that you're passionate about. It doesn't have to be about the topic. I know you have something in mind already, and I'm keen to find out what it is. (laughs) So one of the things I'm having a lot of fun right now learning about and talking about is what's happening in the world of psychedelics. So the the MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Study, which has been an organization around since 1985, has been funding global studies on MDMA. And there's been research now for quite a number of years on psilocybin ketamine is legal now and what we're what we're finding in the research that's being done is people who have complex trauma complex PTSD um, have uh, treatment resistant depression anxiety eating disorders people who are in end of life stage of with cancer often they are responding in remarkable ways to this new treatment and so rather than being in places where they're not seeing relief from these symptoms for years and years, they're doing one to three um, uh, treatments. So basically they'll do a couple of sessions with a therapist, do a journey treatment, then a couple of integration sessions. And they'll do that like three times. And they're doing research to show that people's PTSD is literally gone a year and more out from that, no more symptoms. And so I'm just really excited about where we are, that we have this emerging field and that if we roll this out in a very um, smart and ethical and careful way, we can provide a relief for people who've been suffering and who've been attempting suicides in, in ways we've just never been able to do before because we shut it down. We had this research and we were seeing these results back in the 70s and it got shut down and it's now been shut down for 50 years. We could have been way further down the road, but hopefully we'll be able to bring this these medicines to people who've been really suffering. And, and I think it could revolutionize, um, it could revolutionize our world in that if you get give this much healing to this many people, then they are free to live a life that cares for themselves and cares for others and cares for our earth. So I'm, I'm really excited about what's happening. So I encourage anybody who's interested to just do their own research. They can go to the maps, maps.org website, M-A-P-S, and read about it and learn about what's happening and Yeah, we'll see what happens. We'll know as the next probably five years, five or so years. I know that they just passed a a great law in in Australia around this. So um, we're, we're getting there and I'm excited about it. Yeah, this is new information to me, but it sounds really interesting because, as I said, I'm starting to hear more and more about psychedelics. And I think it's uh, something that we should start looking at, you know, if we want to learn about what's going on around us. 
reminder to myself, especially. So thank you for that. And truly, thank you so much for being here. It's been a joy talking to you. I would love to continue this conversation all day if I can. Uh, so <laughs> hopefully we'll have you back some other time. We can explore another angle of this. You know, perhaps we'll have something else to discuss. I'm sure we will. Um, and for our listeners, if for our, for our audience, if they would like to find out more about your work, how can they do that? Well, you can find the books, Sex, God, and the Conservative Church, Erasing Shame from Sexual Intimacy or Shameless Parenting, Everything You Need to Raise Shame-Free, Confident Kids and Heal Your Shame Too. Both those books can be found on Amazon or at other booksellers. You can follow me at Dr. Tina Shameless on Instagram. Uh, and uh, my website is my name, tinashermersellers.com. And that's a place where I have lots of resources, free resources, all kinds of things. I have, I have resources for doctors and clergy and psychotherapists and um, coaches and educators to like handouts that they can use where they are. And just I'm trying to find all kinds of ways to support people in living the life that feels honoring to them. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you so much once again for being here, for sharing all of your insights and so much more. Um, I'm sure our listeners will find out more about you given the information that you just shared now. Um, and as I said, Julia Joy, hopefully we'll have you back some other time. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun, Lou. You've been listening to Doing Well, the Wellbeing Science Insights podcast produced by the Wellbeing Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 Life Management Perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and other podcasting apps available on your devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at we.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Lu Ngo. Thanks for tuning in.